This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Alice Coltrane's Spiritual Eternal off of the 1976 album Eternity opens the show and will be played throughout during the breaks and in closing. Tonight, in lieu of Interchange, we're going to share another special episode of the local podcast, The Hijabi Diaries. This one is called Redneck Muslim and explores one woman's lifelong attraction to organized religion. Host Aubrey Cedar offers the life story of one woman, her name is Dawn, a member of the Bloomington Muslim community who has practiced three very different religions and lived a life full of adventure. The Hijabi Diaries is produced in association with the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. The show begins with Cedar introducing us to Dawn. We'll hear about her abusive relationship with a stepfather who was a Pentecostal preacher. When she was taken out of the home after a horrible beating, she joined the Navy and put an ocean between her and her past. What she found in Italy gave her a sense of spiritual belonging. And now, part one of Redneck Muslim from the Hijabi Diaries. There are many, many people in the United States that identify themselves as a member of the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. There are also many people, now more than ever actually, that do not identify themselves as a part of any particular religion, who have their own individual spiritual beliefs, don't feel the need to go to church, and there are still others who don't believe in God at all and don't have any sort of spiritual practice. Agnosticism and atheism rank in the top five most popular religions in America. It's no secret that our culture has gotten increasingly secular over the past century, and because of this, I've had a lot of people ask me, when discussing my personal religious beliefs with them, but why? Why do you need to be a part of a religion? What's so important about going to church, about saying prayers, or taking part in traditions? Obviously, as we've watched scandals happening in the Catholic Church, churches of various faiths speaking out with hostility towards the LGBT community, and pushing back attempts to have equal representation of men and women in church hierarchy— We've become a little jaded. Some of us have rejected religion as a faulty system altogether. Yet the right to freely practice your religion is a right that thousands of people from all over the world still flock to America to enjoy. So religion still must have, at its core, some redeeming qualities and something to it that people will risk their lives to commune with and to be a part of. I spoke to a woman during a Hijabi Diaries interview recently who said to me that without the freedom to practice her religion, she doesn't think she would be fully human. So when we're investigating the lives of religious Americans, in order to truly understand a key component of who these people are and why they live the way they do, those of us who don't subscribe to a particular religion have to ask ourselves this broader question. What does religion bring to us as humans? Why do people search for religion? devote so much of their time and energy to practicing their religion and to growing in their faith? 
what's all the fuss about? Today, we are going to explore this question by following the story of one woman, a woman named Dawn. Dawn's life has been a very full one, and I don't want to go into details or I'll spoil the story, but I do want to say this, that like all the stories we hear on the Hijabi Diaries, this is a story of struggle, a story of faith, a story of courage and determination, and this time a story of reunion. The reunion of a mother and a daughter after many, many years apart, and the reunion of a woman with herself and with her own power. I met Dawn five months ago when I came to interview her daughter, Amanda, for the Hijabi Diaries. I learned a bit of her story then, and I knew that I had to sit down with her sometime to get it, all of it, recorded. I want to warn anyone listening that this episode does include a brief mention of violent physical and sexual abuse. Please use your discretion, especially if you're listening with children. Right, never recording. So what all, all that I mean is, like, don't be... Like, we don't have to get all of this perfect. Like, don't be intimidated well, by the recorder. There's nothing perfect <laughs> in my life these days. Yeah. I sat down with Don and Amanda as they were packing up their home to move to Orlando, Florida, one afternoon near the beginning of May. It was one of the first truly hot days of the spring, and the room was being cooled with small standing fans, which I apologize you will hear in the recording and I sat amongst their two incredibly affectionate cats on the floor of their living room, occasionally being coerced into scratching cat ears and rubbing bellies, while Dawn sat in a comfy old armchair in front of me, resting a knee that she had injured while packing the U-Haul the day before. So, can you tell... There's so much about your life that I want to know about. Like, Ask a question. Oh my gosh. Um, so where, where did it start? Where were you born? Gary. I'm a local girl, uh-huh. at least Indiana. So, yeah, I was born in 1965 in Gary, Indiana. Wow. On a nasty morning, close to Thanksgiving, my mother actually thought the first labor pains was indigestion because she ate too much turkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I am a turkey and then, but then you went down to the south. So how did that? How did My that stepfather became a minister, mm-hmm. and he got a church in a little town called Greensburg down in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And from there, he branched out to snake handling. Oh wow! And yeah, that's the first like religious part of your life, right? Yeah, I. Mm-hmm. My grandmother made sure I was in church from the time I was born until. My stepdad became a Christian. As the Bible said this, that you say the Bible said that, you say God said it. Don's stepfather was a Christian minister, and specifically a minister of a Pentecostal church that practiced snake handling. A little background on the religious practice and the history behind the snake handling Pentecostal church. Pentecostalism is an evangelical Protestant denomination of Christianity. The church is closely tied to the renewal movement of Christianity. Since the mid-20th century, the number of people in the U.S. that identify themselves as being a practicing religious person has declined rapidly. With each generation, less and less people are attending church. Evangelical Christian churches in the renewal movement try to bring as many people as they can to the Christian church. Pentecostalism does this in a way that many of us would consider kind of wacky and even extreme. 
though it is based in the scripture of the Bible, so bear with me. Pentecostalism places special emphasis in direct personal experience of God through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Pentecostal practitioners believe that when you are baptized by the Holy Spirit and become a true believer, you are granted special powers. You can lay hands on the sick and heal them, ingest poison and not fall ill or die, give testimony of miracles, and of course, take up serpents without being bitten. If you watch a video of snakes being handled in a Pentecostal service, you'll see a bunch of people dancing around ecstatically, some playing instruments, some singing music reminiscent of gospel, and some carrying around large and very confused-looking snakes, usually at arm's length. This can go on for hours. It's meant to be a celebration of sorts, of the special powers that believers feel they have been granted through baptism by the Holy Spirit. The biblical foundation of this belief and their God-given immunity to snake bites they say can be found in Acts 28, verses 1 through 6, when Paul was bitten by a venomous serpent in front of his followers and did not die. He didn't even wince, really. The snake bit him and he just kind of shrugged it off and went on. Pentecostals believe that since Paul was a true believer, once they are made believers by the Holy Spirit, they will have the same immunity to snake venom that he had. When a Pentecostal person eventually becomes sick or is poisoned by a snake bite, it is common practice for them to refuse all medical aid. This is because, again, they believe that God will save them. And if he doesn't, they believe that this simply means it's their time to go. Because of its obvious danger to Pentecostal practitioners, many states have outlawed the practice of snake handling. It was outlawed in Kentucky, where Dawn and her family lived, and where her stepfather ministered his Pentecostal church almost as soon as it became an established practice. It is still practiced, however, and as long as the police don't witness it happening, they don't seem to care too much. So, Dawn was born into this particular religion, and though she didn't speak much to any specific experiences she had in the church— she told me that the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse she experienced in her stepfather's house was done mainly in the name of God, and that that is what led her to reject religion and God altogether by the time she was removed from the house at 17. There's a lot of abuse, and I was eventually taken out of the house uh, and went to the Navy, and from there kind of broke with all Christianity because a lot of the abuse was done in the name of God, and I couldn't wrap my head around that. This is Doug Storm. In lieu of interchange, you're listening to a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries, brought to you by the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. After Dawn was removed from her mother and stepfather's house, she was put into a foster home, and once she turned 18, she joined the Navy. She was stationed in Sicily, and it was there that she met a group of women, a group of witches called the Strega, who would play a huge role in her life from then on. I was in one of the Catholic churches, and over there, Catholicism is huge. And the churches, the cathedrals, and I just go in the cathedrals just to sit, because there's these, these massive, beautiful buildings. And so I was in there, and there's this group of women, and 
One of them spoke English, asked me, are you an American? I said, yeah. I said, uh, yeah, I'm with the U.S. Navy. Gracias, senior. Uh, yeah. Whatever, kid. <laughs> <laughs> my, my time is not working today. And uh, she asked me, uh, was I Catholic? I said, no. Are you Christian? No. I'm nothing. I said, Duh. why are you nothing? Everybody's something. I told him, you know, a lot of abuse in my childhood, and it was done mainly in the name of God. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And no rod was ever spoiled, spared. And so they asked me if I wanted to come. If I wanted to come to a meeting with them. The Strega, which John just mentioned, in which she met in that basilica, are a group of practitioners of Stregaria or La Vecchia Religione, the old religion of Italy. Within this religion are contained the pre-Christian European mystery teachings. Stregaria is rooted in Etruscan religion, the Etruscan civilization being one of the ancient civilizations of what is now Italy, and relates to religious practices that date back even further to Neolithic societies in Europe. There are a number of modern Italian and Roman influences, but Strega maintain that the foundational practices and beliefs of their religion are much, much older than the cultures of Italy or Rome, and have less to do with them than is widely thought. It's just that, like many pagan religions, Stregaria had to be practiced in secret, and sometimes mixed with Christian religious practice, in order to survive various inquisitions and religious wars. Many of the Strega witches still view the Catholic saints as old pagan gods disguised in Christian garb. Stregaria is primarily a nature-based religion. They observe many of the holidays on the pagan wheel of the year. They are also devoted to honoring their ancestors and to connecting with them and honoring them through spirits called lares. Since the Strega are considered witches, they also perform various kinds of magic. Sex, sexuality, and sensuality are important elements of the Strega tradition and do appear in rituals throughout the year. But don't worry, from what I've read about these particular practices and rituals, only willing adults are allowed to participate or even attend such rituals. Stregaria used to be a religion passed down through families, through blood. This was important due to the emphasis on honoring one's ancestors and ancestral connections. However, since the religion was practiced in secret for so long, and relatively few practitioners who are of the blood, as they say, remain, the Strega welcome anyone who is interested to explore the Stregaria tradition and to become a practitioner. This is why Dawn was welcomed so openly into this particular group she talks about in Sicily. Strega live all over the world. You won't see a Strega church when you're driving down the road, but there are practitioners stretching coast to coast in the U.S. who meet up to practice throughout the year. Being an American, I was a little cautious. What kind of a meeting? This was back before Taliban and ISIS and all that. 
1984. And uh, so they, uh, I went to this meeting. It was all women. And it was love. I'd never seen that before. Part of the problem in my childhood, my mother had tried selling me into black market. She, to this day, still hates me because I ruined her life. And it was mother's love that I'd never had before. Time went by and I got more and more deeply involved and they finally, when I finally started realizing what it was, I'm going, but all witches are bad. All witches hate and they kill and they're this and they're... No, the scripture don't. Yeah, I prayed with my son and came back to the States. Had him, went back over. And found a different group. A group on the base of Americans. And I figured, you know, the Italians, that was them. They were protecting their country and, you know, they, they were just showing me the good stuff. And got involved with the group on the base and come to find out, no, they're all like this. It's all love and healing and protection. And I stayed for 30, in witchcraft for 30 years. 33. Thank you, dear. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm, and you've been listening to a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries, brought to you by the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. Producer and host Aubrey Cedar shares the life story of one woman. Her name is Dawn, a member of the Bloomington Muslim community who's practiced three very different religions and lived a life full of adventure. When we come back, Aubrey and Dawn explore the ways religious practice seeks to identify and compensate for something missing in one's personal life. Stay with us for more Hijabi Diaries on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm. Tonight, Interchange steps aside in order to bring you a second special episode of the Hijabi Diaries. This one is called Redneck Muslim and features the life of Dawn, 
a member of the Bloomington Muslim community. Your host and producer is Aubrey Cedar. For segment two, Aubrey and Dawn discuss the ways personal trauma and family trauma shape Dawn's search for acceptance and love. And we're introduced to Amanda, Dawn's daughter. And now, part two of Redneck Muslim, a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries. Dawn and I spent a lot of our conversation talking about why she spent so long practicing strega and what compelled her to join another religion so soon after the horrible experiences in her childhood, which were so closely tied to religion. She practiced it when she was stationed in Sicily, and then practiced it on the base when she returned to the U.S., and then when she moved to Panama City, Florida, she joined another group. Dawn says she thinks she was attracted to it partly because being a part of the Strega community allowed her to receive a kind of love— and to have a kind of community that she'd never had before. And, in a sense, it helped her to reclaim a missing part of herself. It was a gentle way of getting me back. And I have to sit back and think that now everything... I know everything that I've been through has shaped who I am today. Even religiously. What I went through with my family shaped who I was in in paganism Mm -hmm. and through them and paganism into what I am today in Islam. Mm -hmm. What was the thing that you got from the women that you felt like drew you closer to like a spirituality or a God, like drew you back to that place that you didn't want to go? The love of the love of a woman having that mother that I never had. My foster mother passed away three weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. And she was my first real mother. The first person who loved and cared. She wasn't the woman that raised me. Where Francis could only do so much because of what the state allows and does not allow a foster mother to do. Mm-hmm. The women in Italy, and subsequently the women here in the States that, that I stayed with for a long time at Emerald Coast Pagan Community down in Panama City, Florida, they were nurturing. I guess that's the best way to say it. They nurtured the parts of me that had never been nurtured. And what parts were those, if you if you can, like, describe it? Because obviously you're a good mother now, so, like, did they nurture those parts of you that, like, were motherly? I think so. There are times I look at her and go, oh, my God, I screwed up again with you. But every mother does that. I know. Every mother. I know, but still... And I've come to meet the legendary takers I've only come to ask them for a lot Oh, they say I come with less than I should write In the early 2000s, Dawn had started to distance herself from the Stregaria practices. And it was during this time that she would sit down regularly with a group of women she knew to discuss religion and to talk about each other's religious beliefs. There were four of us girls. We were all in 
College of Education down in Florida. There's Aisha, who was the Muslim. Me. One of the girls was Roman Catholic, and one of them was Baptist. And we sat around, and we argued, for lack of a better term, debated our, our religion, what we were. And I always found Aisha so interesting because the Islam was something I knew nothing about. I knew a little bit about Catholic and uh, Baptists, but Muslims I didn't know anything about. And so she was the first one that ever planted the seeds of Islam in my head. And Your witness? Yeah. I love that word. She, I love it. She, she was the one that was there. You're listening to the Hijabi Diaries. Muslim women speaking for themselves. Now completely split from Stregeria, no longer in the Navy or in school, Dawn embarked on a whole new life adventure. She took a job as a truck driver, driving 18-wheelers across the U.S. Well, if you ever plan to motor west, Jack, take my way, it's the highway, that's the best. So, I left college, went truck driving. Yeah, I drove trucks, 18-wheelers for five years. I oh saw that. Gosh. I saw that head pop up when I said that. Yeah, I drove it, the big trucks for five years. I remember when you first told me that. I was like, what? How was that? What was that like? The first six months were wonderful. But after that, you've seen just about everything. And the traffic is murder. They kept me on the East Coast. D.C., New York, New York City. But after being in it, it just got boring. Because that traffic up there is horrid. Get your kicks on Route 66. Will it wind? While Dawn was on a rig in Michigan, she got word that her half-sister, the child of her mother and her stepfather, had died. She had died young of congestive heart failure that she had contracted when she was 25. Don was not eager to see her mother or her stepfather ever again, but she loved her sister, her brother-in-law, and her young niece. So she traveled to Valparaiso, Indiana, to help plan the viewing and the funeral. It was not a pleasant family reunion. I got the call from her husband and went up for the funeral. Actually, I came down. I was on a rig when she died. I was up in Michigan. And my partner drove me down, and I stayed with them for a week. And uh, my brother-in-law came, got me, and took me to his house because that's where I was going to stay. And my mother walks into the house, and she throws a fit. 
you aren't supposed to be here, you never loved your sister, you left, you, 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 you. And it started a fight. We are standing there in my brother-in-law's kitchen with my, at the time, 12-year-old niece standing there watching this. And if my brother-in-law hadn't walked in, I have no doubt it would have come to blows. It totally pissed her off. She did not want me there at all. She actually told him not to even tell me she was dead. She wasn't going to let me know at all. So she died on the 24th of November. My birthday's the 27th of November. My mother, making preps for the funeral, sitting in the funeral home, said, I want the funeral on November 27th. So my brother-in-law fought it tooth and nail. The funeral will be the 28th. We can have a viewing on the 27th, but we cannot have that funeral on her birthday. Absolutely not. And uh, so we're at the viewing. And there are friends of mine that I grew up with. And we're all around. We're just jawjacking and just talking. And her funeral was a big reunion. Well, most of us hadn't seen one another in years. And I haven't seen any of them since. And I'll probably take another funeral for me to see any more of them. My stepfather walks up to me. And he looks at me, and he tells me, I resent the fact that you lived despite what I did. And my daughter died. This is Doug Storm. In lieu of interchange, you're listening to a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries, brought to you by the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. When I spoke to Dawn about her life, She had told me that she'd been horribly abused by her stepfather and her mother. However, she hadn't told me how. After our interview, her daughter, Amanda, explained to me what happened. And although they didn't wish to speak about it themselves, they gave me permission to explain what happened. When Dawn was 17, living with her stepfather and her mother, her stepfather tied her to a bed, raped her, and beat her so severely across the face that parts of her skull were shattered. He did all this while her mother watched. She was then left in the room to die, and she would have, if a neighbor boy hadn't climbed a tree and peeked into the window of the upstairs bedroom where she was, and told his parents what he saw, which led them to call the police. Amanda told me that when the police came to the house and asked for Dawn, Dawn's mother told them that she wasn't at home. And it wasn't until the police told them that they had been tipped off by the neighbors that they let them inside the house. Mm, 
you're listening to the Hijabi Diaries. After the funeral fiasco, Dawn returned to truck driving and to her home in Panama City, Florida. Soon after that, though, she left truck driving, and then one day she got a call from her half-sister, the child of her biological father and her stepmother. Left truck driving all the way around. My dad, one of my younger sisters called me and said my dad had cancer again for the fourth time. So they wanted me to come up. I had worked in hospice before, worked with cancer patients. So I knew and understood what he was going through. So I left Florida in 2008 and moved back up here to Indiana. So one day I was on the computer and I was bored. And it was my ex-husband's birthday, her dad's birthday. And I was like, I'm just going to put his name in because I'd heard he was dead. So I want to see if he's fat or not. And up pops this message. I'm looking for my parents, James and Don Wentworth. And I'm like, no, it can't be. It can't be her. So this is the really exciting part of the story, and the part that I've been itching to get to. Amanda, Dawn's daughter, has been sitting in the room the whole time while I've been recording, chiming in at appropriate moments that you haven't heard, correcting her mother's memory, filling in the blanks, offering her own hilarious commentary. Amanda and Dawn are so similar, and their relationship is so easy and close, you'd think they'd been with each other their whole entire lives. Don tells us the story of how they reunited. But I'm like, no, it can't be. It can't be her. And I put it, open a separate window and keep going back over. And that message is still there. It's been taken down. Okay, I'll write her. So I write her this beautiful beautiful letter. It was poured my heart out in it. I don't hear anything back. Three weeks later, I was talking with one of my stepsons. And he says, she's probably just scared. Write her. Now, just write her. Tell her you're still there. So I write her, and I tell her, you know, I'm still here. I know this is a scary idea. This is a scary situation, you know. Just be reassured. I'm here whenever you want to talk. About five minutes later, I get this very polite, who the heck are you message. She had never gotten the first mail. (laughs) We're still looking for it. We are still, this was 2009. You don't have a copy of the letter? Nope, I never kept a copy. Oh my god, that's so crazy. I get this message going, I'm still here, I'm still here. And you're like, I'm like, who the heck? And then I get down to the name and it's Dawn Bright, Wentworth in parentheses. I looked at my then fiance, I think it just found my mom. 
Yeah. He's like, no, can't be her. So I wrote her back to him, like, who are you and why was I talking to you? Mm-hmm. And so I write her back and say, LOL, you have your father's memory. <laughs> That's crazy. And she writes me back and says, you really are her. Yeah. So we exchange phone numbers. And I was an idiot. I got up and went to the bathroom. Left my phone laying next to my desk. And uh, I left my phone laying on my desk and go to the bathroom. I hear it ringing. But I can't get out there before it quits ringing. Yeah. Crap, that was her. Aww. So I dialed over back. She's gone off and left her phone laying somewhere. Tag, you're it. So, a few minutes later, I get the call back. Mm-hmm. I missed it. I think I had taken the dog out to go to the bathroom. I got to take my <laughs> phone. Are funny. So, I call her back. This time, she's in the bathtub. I had decided I was relaxing. I was not dealing with this. This back and forth I could not handle. I was going to go take a shower. So, I left her a message. Call me. When you get this, I'm not going to lay my phone down anywhere else tonight. That was 10 o'clock at night. It was 4.30 in the morning when we finally got off the phone. We cried, we talked, we laughed. It was the morning of August 10th. I was supposed to be at work at 6.30. I called my boss said, I'm sick, I'll be in on Wednesday, because Tuesday was my day off. So, one of the last times I spoke to my mom, I called her and said, I found her. I found Amanda. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm, and you've been listening to a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries, brought to you by the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. Producer and host Aubrey Cedar shares the life story of one woman. Her name is Dawn, a member of the Bloomington Muslim community, who's practiced three very different religions and lived a life full of adventure. When we come back, we'll hear about the circumstances that led to Dawn and her daughter Amanda's conversion to Islam. Stay with us for more Redneck Muslim from the Hijabi Diaries on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm. Tonight, Interchange steps aside in order to bring you a second special episode of the Hijabi Diaries. 
This one is called Redneck Muslim and features the life of Dawn, a member of the Bloomington Muslim community. Your host and producer is Aubrey Cedar. For this final segment, we hear about the circumstances that led to Dawn and Amanda's conversion to Islam. Continuing throughout is a stress on finding or discovering a community of mothering care. And now, part three of Redneck Muslim, a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries. I asked Dawn after the interview why she had had to give up Amanda in the first place. She told me that in 1990, she had gone to jail. She didn't say for what. And she didn't have any family in Panama City, Florida, where she lived at the time, to take care of Amanda. She had her husband, whom she was separated from at the time, but not legally divorced from. But unbeknownst to her, he had signed papers giving up his parental rights to Amanda, claiming that he didn't know what he was signing. So the only option for Dawn was to let Amanda be taken into foster care. She talked to Amanda's social worker about fighting to get custody of her once she was released from jail. But the social worker told her that it would take years to do so, since the father had already given up his custody and was about to ship out with the Air Force. During those years that they were fighting, Amanda would be moved from foster home to foster home until she aged out of the system. Rather than putting Amanda through all this, Dawn decided that it was best that she give up custody of her daughter and allow her to be adopted. When Amanda was adopted, the adoption was closed, but on her 18th birthday, Amanda was allowed to request information about both of her biological parents. However, because of the way that Florida state adoption law works, Amanda was not able to access this sealed file on her parents without their permission. As she puts it, how was she supposed to ask for permission to access information about their whereabouts when she didn't have any information about their whereabouts, except what was in that sealed file? So, out of options, she did what any modern young adult would do. She went to the internet, and she posted the message that Dawn would eventually find. And the rest is history. Amanda and Dawn found each other on August 9th, 2009. They met up for the first time in Steubenville, Ohio, where Amanda was going to college. In January of 2010, Dawn moved out to Ohio to live with Amanda, and they have been living together ever since. A few years ago, the two converted to Islam. Dawn tells the story of how they discovered Islam and how they converted together. She had found, she, the Amanda. kid, yeah. had found uh, a friend. Her name is also Amanda in a support group for something. PCOS, I think. No, it was an abortion rights group. Okay. And she was arguing for women to have the right to have access to abortion and stuff mm -hmm. which coming from a woman who at that point was in full hijab and niqab in her profile picture. I was like, holy crap, I need to get to know this person. Yeah. <laughs> so did that, found out Amanda has her own set of problems with her family, and there were times she just needed to talk to a mother. So I became friends with her and kept seeing all this Islam, Islam, Islam on our page. And I knew what Aisha had told me. Mm -hmm. And what Amanda was now saying and showing was matching up with what Aisha had said. So I was like, okay, these two are on the same page. You know, it's not what I hear in the media. Mm -hmm. You know, these two are on the same page. 
so we uh and what were you hearing like what were they saying at that point about like the love the women's rights um peace even though, yes, I was in the military, yes, I fired weapons, yes, I have shot people. I was still that pacifist. I didn't really like the idea of killing people. I know at times, in cases of war, we do do it. But it doesn't mean I had to like it. Well, first off, equal rights for women in a religion. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that, that's huge. That's and so I read some of what Amanda had posted. and Then we moved up here and we go, start going to the Unitarian Universalist Church over here, Mary Ann Macklin. And they had that Ramadan. They hosted Ramadan dinner for the mosque every year. And so we decide, hey, we've never gone to one of these. I want to see what it is. So we made some cookies. And we went. And there is this girl. And I don't know if you've met her yet. We see her at a distance and we're looking at one another going, Is that Amanda? No, that can't be Amanda. Amanda's in London. That can't be Amanda. So we walked up to get the woman's name. Oh. And Sure enough, you know, she's one of the crew. She's actually the the, the leader of the Americans, <laughs> unofficial. And uh, she, uh, she says, you know, why don't you guys come to Juma on Friday? Well, the problem was either she worked mornings and we couldn't get there on Fridays or she worked afternoons and we couldn't get there. I wasn't going by myself the first time. So finally, July 3rd, 2014, she's off. It's Friday. We walk into the mosque. And, you know, two, you'd figure two Americans walking in, you know, everybody's going to be a little bit standoffish, especially the, the uh, non-Americans. People were coming up throwing arms around us. So glad you're here. You know, if you have any questions, just ask. Abby's doing the, you know, come on in. We love you guys. Come on in. They started calling the Adon, which is the call to prayer. And both of us just burst out into tears. through the whole thing and we get back in the car and we look at one another the first words out of one another's mouths are what did you feel? What did you feel? I had gotten a little disgruntled with a lot of paganism because especially here the pagans have taken a totally different turn and 
I don't like what they represent up here. They, they've become kind of racist up here, and I don't like that. And so I had kind of fallen out of the love that I was getting, and I found it in Islam. And the peace that I had first had in paganism, it was gone. And I found it back in Islam. I found the love and the compassion and the peace in Islam that I wasn't finding anywhere any longer. We came home the afternoon of the 3rd of July and we got online with Amanda and we told her, you know, so what do you do to become Muslim? And she, Amanda's doing that. Are you thinking about it? <laughs> yeah, well, we're curious. So it goes on for another five days because it was the eighth. Amanda and her husband via uh, long distance. They were now living in I uh, can't pronounce the first word, but they're living in Bangladesh. He's a school teacher. Via webcam, we said our Shahada with them. And it was one of those, ooh, look at what we did. And afterwards, I can remember both of us kind of doing the, did we really just do this? And Abby's like, oh, that's great. I love it. But now let's do it in the mosque. The two of us don't like being center of attention. <laughs> I know that, yeah. We do not like being center of attention. But when you are, you have a lot to say. You can't shut me up. <laughs> and uh, so Abby gets it arranged. And we say our public shahada. And... It was just, there. yeah, there have been moments where I've just said, oh, screw all this, I'm not going to stay here. No. I don't like it. I'm not doing it. No. Not going to stay in Islam? Yep. And then there are, in the next breath, why would I ever want to leave? <laughs> because, like you said, it is now who I am. This is Doug Storm. In lieu of interchange, you're listening to a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries, brought to you by the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. So you feel this strongly about hijab that like it is who you are. And can you tell me why that is? No. Or it's uh, just like, no. Never. <laughs> I uh, you know, I've actually said, I figured you were going to ask that question. And I've actually sat and thought about that. I'm still Dawn. I'm still the redneck bonfire 
flannel shirt, blue <laughs> jeans, brat, <laughs> woman that I always have been. But now the flannel shirts have gotten a little longer. <laughs> Uh, a little bit more stylish, maybe. Yeah, a little stylish. But now I do... I wear hijab. There there was one day she and I were talking about Trump and what's going on and said that... Uh, about taking off the hijab if he got in office. And I, after she said it, I got thinking, I don't want to take it off. Not even for him. Because it's just, it's that representation of who I have become. And. And for everything that you've gone through to get here, and yeah, to this place, it would be an insult to yourself and your character yeah, to take it off. For him. It would. For a lot of the people that I've spoken to for the Hijabi Diaries, Dawn included, religion means empowerment. It means purpose. It means having a mission in life that they feel is connected to a greater mission of existence. It's doing their part to be a part of it all. Some, like the Strega, look to nature. They look to the lives of their ancestors and the marks that these people made on the world, what they lived for. And some look to religion, which gives them history, community, roots, and thousands of years of tradition which have given millions of souls hope, direction, wisdom, and even a glimpse at the divine. And what is the divine? Well, I'm not really sure either. To me, it's always been like a feeling, something that I get close to when I feel connected to everything around me, when I'm in the presence of great friends and family, when after a really hard day, I see something that re-roots me in the knowledge that despite all our wrongdoings, to be human on earth is a paradise. And I'm so lucky to be a part of it all. I see it when I witness acts of kindness and I feel it all around me during glorious summers like this one as I watch my garden burst into life. Or when I stay up so late working on the podcast that I hear birds recognize the first light of day and start singing. All of the humans I've ever known have been searching in their own way for a connection with the great big all that is that makes them feel this way. Religion is one way to find that, and that is the way that Dawn chose, twice, for herself. Religion gave Dawn something she'd never had. It also taught her, as her daughter Amanda commented during our conversation, the difference between love and abuse. It taught her how to love her daughter, how to be the mother that she never had. Islam empowered her as a woman, teaching her that a woman should be honored and respected, always and in every way. And that's the biggie. Islam has included me. They've included my daughter. The women in Islam, contrary to what you hear in the news, are regarded in a very positive light. Part of the part of the scriptures say that John or heaven is at a mother's feet. Khadijah was the 
first woman that the prophet, praise be upon him, went to. It was his wife that he sought support from. His uh, youngest wife, Aisha, she is said to have recorded a lot of the Hadiths, a lot of his sayings come from her. Because Khadijah had already passed away. He, the prophet, praise be upon him, did not marry another woman until Khadijah had died. He respected her that much. He, when Fatima came into the tent, which is one of his daughters, he would stand up to honor her. That is how women are treated. We're honored. And for the first time in my life, I'm honored. I'm cared about enough to be honored. And that is really a weird feeling because It's never been there before. It's not been there. As a child growing up, I was never honored. Through my 48 years before I became a Muslim, I was never honored. Now I am. <laughs> You've been listening to Redneck Muslim, a special episode of the Hijabi Diaries. The music used in this episode comes from Joe Pug, Pearls of Islam, and Baraka Blue. The Hijabi Diaries is produced by Anna Maidi and Aubrey Cedar in association with the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. To listen to or download the full 63 minutes of Redneck Muslim, go to the show's own website, hijabidiaries.com. Next week, Interchange returns with a Midsummer's Sensibility. That's my oh-so-clever mashup of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Sense and Sensibility. Those are the two plays being performed at the IU Summer Theater running July 8th through the 23rd. I'll be joined by four professional actors appearing courtesy of the Actors' Equity Association. We'll discuss the logistics of playing alternating shows with one cast, an adaptation of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, and Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And the actors tell us what makes repertory theater so special for them and audiences. A Midsummer Sensibility on the next Interchange. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm and I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited Redneck Muslim to fit our time constraints. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson and Joe Crawford is executive producer. Again, Alice Coltrane's Spiritual Eternal has been our theme music for the program and we'll ride that wave into the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station. WFHB.